So I just want to say something about um, a little uh, <laughs> we we would like to ask people to sit up during the Dharma talk and just um, it's sort of a cultural thing. This practice comes from Asia where people don't point their feet at the teacher and we we kind of like to keep that alive so if you can just to sit you know comfortably um, upright during the talk thank you but I still know that you want to point your feet at me (laughs) (laughs) that's your problem so tonight I would like to include in in my um, comments the um, the teaching from the Buddha that uh, is included in all the teachings of the Buddha that all the teachings of the Buddha spring from uh, this essential teaching the first teaching that the Buddha gave after his uh, awakening under the Bodhi tree teaching called, uh, it came out of a sutra called the Dhamma Chaka Sutta. Dhamma Chaka, or Dharma Chakra, depending on your persuasion. Uh, Dhamma Chaka means Dhamma, uh, which is truth, and Chaka, or Chakra, is wheel. It's the, it's the teaching where he turned the wheel of the Dharma, began to disseminate what he had learned uh, in his own practice. And within that teaching is the central um, essence of his teaching uh, encapsulated in the Four Noble Truths. So I'd like to explore that a little bit tonight. But before I do that, I want to just tie this a little bit into last evening's talk where Anna said that she felt like uh, she was a cook overseeing um, a pot. And I do have a sense after three days and meeting with you that you are all really cooking now. And I thought that I would, uh, I would um, help you enjoy your own, um, your own experience of cooking uh, by adding the, a poem from Shel Silverstein called Me Stew. I have nothing to put in my stew, you see. Not a bone or a bean or a black-eyed pea. So I'll just climb in the pot to see if I can make a stew out of me. I'll put in some pepper and salt. I'll sit in the bubbling water. I won't scream a bit. I'll sing while I simmer. I'll smile while I'm stewing. I'll taste myself often to see how I'm doing. I'll stir me around with this big wooden spoon and serve myself up at a quarter to noon. So bring out your stew bowls, you gobblers and snackers. Farewell. I hope you enjoy me with crackers. So just like the Buddha, just like this prince 2,500 years ago, 
We don't create a new reality here. We use the ingredients that are already here. The ingredients of our own mind and body, our own direct experience. And this is exactly what the Buddha did. Whatever he taught came out of the fabric of his own life, his own immediate experience. As most of you know, most everyone has heard a little bit of the story of the Buddha. He was restless. He had a restless mind. He felt dissatisfied. He felt that kind of queasiness that where that sense of unsatisfactoriness that almost all, that not just almost all beings experience. And it led him to wonder where he could find relief. No different than any of us. And fortunately, through his senses and his perception, he came into contact, if our eyes are open at all and we're, we're longing, and this is an important distinction Anna made last night between desires that are, are onward leading and wholesome, those that actually make us, that are sticky and, and make us suffering. But he had what we would call a holy longing, a really wholesome desire, a desire to find relief, a, a, such an innocent longing a desire for freedom, the desire that no other desire can fulfill, one that it just springs from the bottom of our heart, that which brought you here, that which is the hidden uh, aim in everything that you do, really, even though we get very confused. But that longing led him, just as it led you here, led you to turn the attention inward instead of outward. And his journey led him to his restlessness. Before he knew how to turn inward, he just started wandering around. And he saw, to his shock and dismay, he saw the reality which he had been oblivious to before and which we try to be oblivious to whenever we can, he saw the reality of, of old age, saw somebody extremely old. He was only 29 when this, story, this part of the story. He saw someone near in age, very, very ill, really not doing so well. And he saw a corpse, saw someone who had died. And this blew his mind. As you hear this, you, you think, how can, somebody, how can that blow the mind of somebody who's 29 years old? But it speaks to our capacity for self-delusion or self-deception. That these are inconvenient facts, inconvenient truths that, um, that if we avoid, they tend, to, um, they tend to have a chain reaction of what the Buddha called samsara, an endless wandering, endlessly looking for something that's, that's not that. Fortunately, he saw not only the reality of sickness, old age, and death, which blew his mind and turned his attention um, 
away from the things that he had been preoccupied with before, he had been just like us, real sensualists. We have these five senses or six senses. They're incredibly sensual. It's incredibly beautiful to see, to hear, to smell, to taste, to touch. It's wonderful and pleasurable to think when it's pleasurable. And he had, he had like the rest of us, he had gone to these senses, to sense experience, uh, as that's where he had put his trust. That's where he had, he had devoted himself as a source of well-being and happiness. And even at the, at the end of his teachings, he didn't uh, abandon the world of senses, but he thought that we need to come to our senses and have a wise relationship to these sense experiences. Because the tendency is to, is to become really um, compulsive about them, as Anna was speaking about last night, to become really addicted, to, uh, to, have, to be so uh, reactive to the pleasant and the unpleasant in our experience that, that, that we become um, caught in liking and disliking and caught in, in trying to get to the next experience and trying to get rid of the one that we're having. And you can see how in little moments of a retreat, how just a simple reaction to somebody who you see in the room who produces a pleasant feeling in you, and it shows the strength of this habit of, of, um, of compulsion, that it starts with a, a, a pleasant sight. I bet you've caught that somebody's caught your eye, and it produced a little pleasant feeling, and before you knew it, your mind said, I like that. Very pleasant. I like that person. I really like that person. I really want to meet this person. In fact, I wish I could break the silence right now so that I could meet that person. And literally within a few seconds, our mind has, has gone on a, on a long ride of uh, fantasy, of, of building a romance, of marriage, of travel, of divorce, of... <laughs> And if you've had any version of that, either, and it could be the other side of it too, what's sometimes called a VV, a Vipassana Vendetta, where something, <laughs> something triggers an, a, a, a aversion in the mind or unpleasantness that's followed by dislike. And before you know it, your mind uh, goes off in a, in a torment, a storm about um, how that person's the cause of all your unhappiness. <laughs> This is just a microcosm here. This is just a brighter mirror, as Anna was saying last night. Our mindfulness, continuous mindfulness, creates the mirror where we really see the way, how much we have depended on this world of of sense pleasures. I'll talk more about them later. But the Buddha realized that all of this, once he saw the reality of sickness, old age, and death, he knew that everything that he held near and dear was also um, subject. He, he knew this was going to happen to him and everything that he'd been looking for to give him a sense of fulfillment was also unreliable and unsatisfactory as a source of, of well-being. But yet there was, there was no one to help him figure out what to do. But then he saw what's called a, he saw the fourth heavenly messenger, and they're heavenly messengers because they, as that poem from 
Rumiana referred to their, their, their messengers from beyond. He saw the messenger because they teach us, they, they point us in the direction of, of what is the, you could say, the divine plan or what, how things are, what's, what's the nature of reality that's universal in our experience. Fortunately, the fourth heavenly messenger was, in the, was seeing a mendicant, a, a monastic or a renunciate, someone who clearly by their countenance, by the way that they were living, were going against the stream of the, of the compulsion to, um, to, and the obsession that we tend to have with what's next. And I bet even right now you may be wondering what's next. How many of you thought of, have thought about the end of the day today? How many of you have thought about the end of the retreat today? Okay, <laughs> thank you. How about the end of your life today? <laughs> now you're getting somewhere. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Seeing this this renunciate inspired him and thought that made him consider that there may be a, a way to, um, to find relief that was much more within than without, much more about how you are with the, with the nature of reality rather than, um, than, the na- than how the nature of reality is. And so just like the Buddha, he stopped and his next step was to sit just like all of us and to see if he could find that reliable refuge within his own heart and mind. And he, just like us, used his, uh, his body. And you can see all the way along, the body is all important. Without his body, there are no senses. Without any senses, there is no perception. Without any perception, there is no capacity to discern the real from the unreal, what's useful, what's not. So he said that within this fathom-long body that we keep pointing to, within this fathom-long body with its perceptions and inner sense lies the world, lies the cause of the world, the cessation of the world, and the path that leads to the cessation of the world. So everything we need to learn, everything we need to know about uh, to answer that deep question, where is a reliable refuge to be found? Where is freedom to be found? Where can I really find relief? Can you resonate with the desire for relief now after having sat for several days? Actually, it, um, the practice uh, intensifies that, that longing, but it, that, it's a wholesome and healthy longing. Not to settle for crumbs, not to settle as... As Hafiz says, don't, uh, I I have it. He says, don't, he says, learn to recognize the counterfeit coins that may buy you just a moment of pleasure, but then drag you for days like a broken man behind a farting camel. So our practice uses, we throw everything in the soup and we cook. We, and we do it together. 
And we actually need each other. To do, we need to do it together. So it's really hard to do on it. It's hard to stay with it by ourselves. And that's the whole thrust of the schedule is to support you being supported and to um, create the as safe and warm conditions for you to cook. And why do we need to have what you would might consider, some have said, pretty extreme conditions, uh, some say too monastic, uh, austere, whatever? It's because we have... Um, we have, um, we have neglected our mind and body. We have been in that world of compulsion, not unlike the Buddha. And we, um, we're afraid of what we'll find when we stop. That this, the world that has been neglected, repressed, ignored, our bodies, and you're getting to know some of the residue of what you have practiced in your life. And it's not to make any kind of judgment about it. In fact, this, there's an art to, to changing gears. There's an char- art to settling in. There's an art to, to, beginning to, to begin to notice the things that we haven't been able to notice. And it's a little scary. As one of our teachers, Ajahn Sumedho, said that there's a tendency to think as soon as we begin to stop that, that if we stop that there is some ogre lurking way down deep inside waiting for an unguarded moment to drive us permanently insane. But then he says, you know, an ogre is just an ogre. It's like a sand grain of the Ganges River. It may be an ugly one, but that's all it is. There's really all of that uh, fear in our mind about what we will find is really, it's just moments, it's just conditions. But yet, there, we, have been, we have neglected the truth of our experience to such a degree that there's an art to entering into it. And sometimes, as you probably discovered, working with anxiety or fear or even diff- physical pain, sometimes we give the instruction, recognize it, accept it, investigate it, don't cling to it, don't identify with it. And it's asking us to fulfill the, the, the three elements of mindfulness, that face-to-face, you know, right there, sink into it, non-superficial, and sustain and stay with it. So we think, oh, my, I have to do that with this, with this anxiety, with this fear or this pain. And in fact... As we settle in, we have to be very gentle about how we begin to approach those uh, disowned places, those neglected areas. And sometimes it's actually wiser to touch into a feeling of fear or anxiety and then intentionally move our attention somewhere else. To remind our mind, we initially need to remind ourselves that, oh, the whole world isn't anxious and fearful. There's actually a place in my body There's a place in this room that's not fearful. There's a place in my body that doesn't hurt. And slowly, slowly, as we move away from that very difficult, scary experience and then move back to it, we slowly begin to accommodate uh, what we were not able to be with before. And we're able to to open to this world that... um, is so rarely seen, the world of you 
in this very moment. It's amazing that what is so close is so ignored. But even St. Augustine in 399 AD said, people travel to wonder at the height of the mountains, the huge waves of the sea, at the long courses of rivers, at the vast compass of the ocean, at the circular motion of the stars, and they pass by themselves without wondering. This is nothing new under the sun. So it's a, a, a delicate, it's a gentle process of turning toward the, the different ogres and recognizing that they're just conditions. What we discover naturally when we sit quietly is that we are profoundly vulnerable. We are, we are really tender. And we, the way that we let ourselves cook is that we let ourselves feel that tenderness. Trungpa Rinpoche used to say that we, use, we think that uh, war, being a warrior is uh, hearing Beethoven's Fifth Symphony and being all pumped up. But true warriorship is beginning to connect with the tenderness of the human heart. He says it's like a, a reindeer when it first grows its horns. Uh, it, they're these soft, bloody little lumps and he doesn't quite know what to do with them. But then he realizes, or she realizes, to, to, no. no, he realizes, thank you. <laughs> he realizes that reindeer should have horns, just as human beings realizes, realize that our hearts should be tender. And we hopefully become passionate about it. This is why Hafiz says, don't surrender your loneliness. This is just, you can interchange any kind of emotion. Don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deep. Let it ferment and season you as few human or even divine ingredients can. Something missing in my heart tonight has made my eyes so soft, my voice so tender, my need of truth absolutely clear. So we're actually in a very delicate beautiful process of turning toward the truth, toward the truth. And it has a, a tenderizing a, effect on our hearts. And just like the Buddha, we are being asked to, um, to pay close attention to what we see. To not to be in some kind of illusion about the world. What he saw when he sat under that Bodhi tree that, uh, that night of seeing Mara, he didn't just see Mara and say, I see you. That was a big piece of it. And it was already a reflection of a certain degree of freedom. As we've been talking about, once you see something, that which is noticing it is not bound up in whatever you're noticing. If you're noticing pain, there's an element of your, of your heart and mind that is, that is unstuck from that pain. When we're not noticing it, when we're bound up in it, bound up in the story of whatever's going on, there's, there's bondage. But as soon as we make that shift and are able to see, oh, I see you, pain, I see you, Mara, 
see you all, whatever it is. It's the beginning of pain, a beginning of freedom. But he didn't stop there. He actually used every moment of experience. He used all the temptations, all the desires, all the doubts, all the things. He expanded beyond the story of whatever was going on and he just sensed, what's this like? And an interesting thing happened. The more he paid attention to things, the brighter his mind became. And the brighter his mind became, the more mirror-like it became. And the more mirror-like it became, the more he started to see in a more subtle way what he had seen when he had seen those, three, those first three messengers. He began to see so clearly that everything that was arising in his mind was in a state of flux. It was appearing and it was disappearing. And it, be, it was, became so obvious to him that to hold on to any of it would, would, would create a feeling like rope burn, would, be, would create suffering. And he saw that everything, that it was arising and passing, all the doubts and the fears, were happening all by themselves. They were, as Anna has used the word, they, were un, they came unbidden. And in that way, they had no... They were selfless. They were impersonal. They were coming and going. There was no agent who was saying, now think this, now desire this. He saw that everything was marked. Everything that came and went and was impermanent could not be self-defining. It couldn't be, it couldn't be mine. It couldn't be me. It was like uh, rent an experience. <laughs> rent a mood. Momentary. And the more, his, the more he was able to see the reality of, of this nature of, of change, the more his mind stopped reacting, stopped grabbing, stopped pushing away. And he began to just spontaneously, not because somebody told him to relax, but he saw that, that holding on to this changing process was completely foolish, that clinging was silly. And that the only reason he kept clinging to changing experiences because he wasn't seeing very clearly, because of, of, un, of unclear perception. And with clear perception, he saw the foolishness and his mind just relaxed. And then, as he, his mind relaxed a little bit, he realized that there, he was feeling quite well And not because anything stopped coming into his mind. The whole show was still happening. Can you imagine sitting here and everything that comes into your mind that, let's say you sat 50 years from now after you've done 50 years of practice. You know, it's highly likely that a lot of the same thoughts will come. Same feelings. Memories, associations, likes, dislikes. But can you imagine, and this is really one of the promises of our practice, if there's so much space around whatever it was, you didn't suffer about it. So he said, we have all kinds of, of um, things that are incredibly uncomfortable, unsatisfying, unreliable, but the, the suffering 
uh, is not inherent in any of that. It's really in the way that we, that we, um, that the unawake person, the unawakened mind relates to the world of, of, um, of birth, sickness, old age, and death. And that, that suffering, the suffering in our minds is caused by holding on to it, by attachment, and can be overcome through our practice. So it's one thing to kind of give a general sense of, um, of the possibility of freedom. But he elucidated a little bit more elaborately I think he thought because we were so addicted to unconsciousness that we need to be hammered over the head. We need a little bit of a, a jolt. And so when he started his teaching, he didn't start with how wonderful awakening is and wax about the, the inherent purity of the mind. He did in his teaching say, luminous is the mind, brightly shining. And he says, and it's colored by all these defilements that visit. And people who, who are not awake don't understand, so they don't cultivate their mind. They just get lost. And he, goes, and he went on to say, luminous is the mind, brightly shining, and it's untouched by whatever visits. Thus the yogi understands, so they cultivate their, their heart and mind. So he said things like that, but that's not what he started with. He started with a diagnosis of our human condition. And in the tradition of Indian medicine of 2,500 years ago, the way things were presented was in the form of a diagnosis, then a prescription, and then an expected result. And he did that with each truth. You could say it was, he was sometimes called the great physician. And his first diagnosis was that that life it has within it. And you can hear that it came right out of his own experience. Life has within it thing, so many things that are difficult to bear, that are hard to be with. That life has an inherent unsatisfactory quality to it because it's always changing. And he said there, that there's unsatisfactoriness in the fact that, that everybody who is born dies Everyone who is born, you could say the definition of birth is the leading cause of death, as the Wiley's Dictionary puts it. But it's also the leading cause of all kinds of stresses. The stress of birth, the stress of sickness, the stress of aging, the stress of dying, the stress of not getting what you want, the stress of not wanting what you get, uh, the stress of loss, the stress of grief, the stress of, of, uh, of just being born. And that no one, absolutely no one, in, who is born into this world is immune to these facts. This is not something that is wrong. This is not, if you have these things in your life, it's not your fault. Or as our friend Wes upstairs says, you're not your fault. This is how it is. 
there are basically three kinds of stresses that we all have to encounter. These, what he called dukkha dukkha, which is the birth, sickness, old age, death, not getting what you want, not wanting what you get, the garden variety. Then the, what he called anicca dukkha, which is the, the stress of things being in a constant state of flux. Is that part of your experience? And then the third one is just what he called Sankara Dukkha, which is the stress that comes just from being at the effect of conditions, conditioning. That as you sat here today, all the things that have come unbidden, pleasant conditions, unpleasant conditions. But Sankara Sankara Dukkha also uh, speaks to the relentlessness of our life in a way the element of our life that's hard to keep doing again and again and again, the Jackson Brown, get up and do it again, the Groundhog Day effect of our life, that every day we have to get up, we have to wash, we have to clean, we have to shop, we have to work, we have to, and it's not so easy. And that's not something wrong, it's just how it is. It's not just you. You didn't do anything wrong. But unfortunately, our mind is not so keen on um, acknowledging this. We've all fallen into what one person wrote in an anonymous story about the Buddha. Uh, We've all fallen into what he called the 84th problem. And I'll just share it with you. Once a farmer went to tell the Buddha about his problems, told the Buddha about his troubles farming how either droughts or monsoons made his work difficult. He told the Buddha about his wife, how even though he loved her, there were certain things about her he wanted to change. Likewise with his children, yes, he loved them, but they weren't quite turning out quite the way he wanted. When he was finished, he asked how the Buddha could help him with his troubles. The Buddha said, I'm sorry, I can't help you. What do you mean, railed the farmer. You're supposed to be a great teacher. The Buddha replied, Sir, it's like this. All human beings have 83 problems. It's a fact of life. Sure, a few problems may go away now and then, but soon enough others will arise. So we'll always have 83 problems. The farmer responded indignantly. Then what's the good of all your teaching? The Buddha replied, My teaching can't help with the 83 problems, but perhaps it can help with the 84th problem. What's that? asked the farmer. The 84th problem is that we don't think we should have any problems. Our life is filled with disharmony in so many ways. Uh, And this teaching invites us uh, to the prescription for dealing with this diagnosis is to open to it, is to welcome it, is to not allow our life to be an endless running from this because that's what has turned our present moments into a feeling, a place where we think we're passing through on our way to somewhere else. And we've, this is how we have forgotten that this present moment, this, this moment that you're sitting here is the only moment you have. And this is not one that you want to miss. And I know that you're maybe appreciating that a little bit more as you settle in. 
maybe your desire to be somewhere, in spite of your thinking about the end of the day or the end of the retreat, you probably had more moments where you didn't want to be somewhere else. What a relief. And that's a little window on, on the further teachings, that there is within this life the potential for the cessation of our struggle with reality. We can actually come home. So the prescription is to just open to how it is. As the poet that Anna read from last night, Jennifer Jennifer Wellwood writes in her poem called The Dakini Speaks. She says, my friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed Let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully like human right beings. But please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us, and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child, she seems cruel, but she is only wild, and her compassion exquisitely precise. Brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth, she strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We're not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. I think we're a little bit more like Woody Allen. He says, I don't mind dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. (laughs) So much is our... so. Intense is our self-delusion. Uh, is that the at least in the Theravada tradition, they cooked up all kinds of skillful means, all kinds of practices, to help us develop some uh, some to, some dispassion toward dispassion as opposed to attachment and and grasping to this body, because this body, each of our bodies is is also a rent a body. And that little interaction that the Buddha had with the heavenly messengers, it loosened in him. In fact, it ended once and for all what he called three prides. And it's the three prides that drive a lot of our compulsion in our life. The three prides are the pride in youth, the pride in health, and the pride in life. And one of the practices that's done in the Theravada tradition is to, is to reflect on the... There's all kinds of traditions that do this, but reflect on the process of dying. I'm going to read just a few of them, just to sample. We won't actually do the practice, but... Aware of my body alive and breathing, breathing in, smiling to my body alive and breathing, I breathe out. Seeing my, my dead body lying in bed, I breathe in. Smiling to my dead body lying in bed, I breathe out. 
seeing my dead body gray in hair, I breathe in. Smiling to my dead body gray in hair, I breathe out. Seeing my dead body in a coffin, I breathe in. Seeing my dead, I'll, I'll just jump around. Seeing my dead body being buried. Seeing my ashes being mixed with the earth. Seeing my dead body decompose. Now that sounds a little odd to us, doesn't it? It does because we're, we hide our corpses, we hide our elderly. We, you know, you go to India. I know there are people here who've been to India. You know, they just parade the bodies right into the middle of town and burn them right in front of everybody. It's just matter of fact. Of course, it's done with a beautiful respect for the cycle of life. It's not just frivolous, but they open to it. And that's what... Uh, that's what we're invited to do, is to welcome it. This is how it is. Not to, not to um, try for control. As, as Helen Keller put it, security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, nor do children as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. So we need to let go open to it. Pablo Neruda had a very, I think it's a funny poem. He said, what we know comes to so little, what we presume is so much, what we learn so laborious, we can only ask questions and die. (laughs) Better save all our pride for the city of the dead and the day of the carrion. There, when the wind shifts through the hollows of your skull, it will show you all manner of enigmatical things, whispering truths in the void where your ears used to be. <laughs> so we want to be able to say in this very life, I, I open to this truth. I stop fighting with it. So as I mentioned before, the Buddha didn't, didn't stop with the fact of, of stress and difficulties and the fact that, that things blow through our, the worldly winds blow through our lives uh, in pretty uncontrollably. The, traditionally, they're called the eight worldly winds blow through our lives. The winds of praise, the winds of blame, the winds of gain, the winds of loss, the winds of shame, the winds of fame. The, the winds of, uh, what's the other one? Gain and loss. You, you get the picture. That these, uh, these winds blow through our lives. But what turns these inherently unstable circumstances into suffering is our, um, our tendency to hold on to contract, to, and it expresses itself as a kind of craving. We react to the, the uh, pleasant by wanting more of it. Hold on that way. We react to the unpleasant by trying to push away of it. And these reactions of liking and dislike harden into a, the addictive pattern of attachment. We attach, we're attached to the state of craving Primarily three different things. Craving sense pleasures. Anna spoke of that last night. 
We all want to, um, we think like the character Spence in the, in the advertisement. Uh, Spence is this character who has a lot of stuff and he says, uh, Spence put a new twist on an old philosophy. To be one with everything, you have to have one of everything. So this is the craving and attachment to sense pleasures. Then there's the craving and attachment in reaction to, to the un- instability of our life, to, the, to our own insecurities, the craving to become, to, be, to perpetuate our life, to keep going, to keep becoming, to, to get somewhere, to become someone, to be somebody. And that... Um, and that state of craving keeps us in a state. It keeps craving, attachment, keeps us in a state of suspended well-being. It keeps us in a state of having our well-being associated with getting somewhere or getting something. So it's always the golden dream just keeps moving ahead. And what, of course, what gets overlooked in the state of craving, in the state of clinging, in the state of attachment, what gets overlooked is the source of well-being that can only be found in this present moment. As Sri Nisargadatta put it, all search for happiness is misery and leads to more misery. The only happiness worth that name is the natural happiness of conscious being, being right where you are, So this craving attachment is just simply wanting our, our deeply conditioned habit of wanting things to be different than the way they are. That expresses itself in these various ways. Desire for pleasure, desire for, for becoming, and then the, the more aversive way it expresses itself is the desire for non-becoming. The desire to make everything stop. It's partly why we, the desire for non-becoming is, is a big reason why we spend a lot of time waiting for sleep at night. Because we want it to turn off. And it's natural. Life's tough. But it, what makes it really tough is this tendency to want things to be different than the way they are. And to the degree that we, that we associate our well-being with what's next, with getting somewhere, getting something, or getting rid of something that is really the trance of the craving and clinging and attached mind to the degree that we're dependent uh, on the future for our happiness. We're left with a feeling, I said before, suspended happiness, but we're left with a feeling of uncertainty, of insecurity, of not knowing whether what we, what, whether we'll get what we want. I don't know whether I'll feel better at the end of the retreat. And that puts me in a state whenever I don't know what's going to happen and I'm dependent on what happens next, I'm in a state of anxiety and worry. I used to talk a lot on retreats about um, about my own tendency of mind being what's classically called a grasping type. You know, there's the grasping type, the aversive type, 
They're kind of character types that reflect our tendencies of mind. The grasping type, the aversive type, and the deluded type. The deluded type get kind of dull and confused and get, don't know what's going on. The aversive type always see what's wrong with things. The grasping type is always looking for the, the, next, uh, the next pleasure. Well, as a grasping type, I noticed that my mind would, would often wait for uh, the next thing. And I had the good fortune of, in my, uh, some 20 years ago, uh, being able to buy a home. And I, the home was the worst home in the neighborhood, and it was a real fixer. And I started the process of, of working on it. And it wasn't just the joy of working on it. I was really aiming for it to be finished. I was really aiming for the end when I could finally say, oh, it's great now. But there was a certain point that I realized, and then it became my mantra, but I realized that home improvement is endless. (laughs) And I realized that self-improvement is endless. And to the degree that I keep waiting to be happy, postponing happiness, well-being, or opening to life, however it's um, presenting itself here, uh, I'm, I'm missing, I'm actually encouraging a state of, of suspended happiness mixed with worry and anxiety and stress that is really a state of ignorance. So you can borrow that. Home improvement is endless. Hmm. We've spent a lot of time in our life in this state of, of trying to get, trying to become, trying to be better, trying to as many of us use loosely, trying to keep up with the Joneses. And as Bo Lozoff puts it, it's time that we realize the Joneses are not happy. (laughs) And when he talks about it, he gives a litany of all the things that are going wrong in their life because they've been ignoring the the real source of true happiness and well-being. But we, we are trained from the time we're born to have uh, ceaseless desires. As Bo Lozoff puts it, modern, some, the mo- modern samsara feeds off an anxiety and depression that it fosters and trains us all in and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara is highly organized, versatile, sophisticated, Salts us from every angle with its propaganda, creating an almost impregnable environment of addiction around us. The more we try to escape, the more we seem to fall into the traps. It is so ingenious at setting for us. Obsessed then with false hopes, dreams, and ambitions which promise happiness but lead only to misery, we're like people crawling through an endless desert, dying of thirst. And all that samsara holds out to us to drink is a cup of salt water designed to make us thirstier. 
So with this second truth that the cause of our of what turns the basic difficulties of life into suffering is this state of craving and attachment. This was the Buddha's diagnosis and his prescription was let go. Abandon this cause. Let go into your life. Touch, connect with it right where it touches you. Very similar in some way to the first one. Open to it. Let go. Let be as is. Just like William Blake, he says, she who, I'm going to use the feminine, she who binds to herself a joy does the winged life destroy. But she who kisses the joy as it flies lives in, in, in eternity sunrise. So the prescription is to let go, is to abandon the cause of suffering. And you'll hear throughout the teaching that if you that you could reduce the teaching to two words, as Ajahn Sumedho uh, puts it. Uh, you can reduce the teaching to two words: letting go. Rather than try to develop this practice and develop that and achieve this and go into that, understand this and read the sutras, study the Abhidharma, learn Pali and Sanskrit, the Majjhamaka, the Prajnaparamita, get ordinations in the Hinayana, the Mahayana, the Vajrayana, write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, let go, let go, let go. I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There is nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. (laughs) Somebody asked... uh, Eckhart Tolle, or made the statement, I cannot believe I could ever reach a point where I'm completely free of my problems, which is the way our mind works. Reach a point, topple forward. And Eckhart Tolle says, you're right. You can never reach that point because you are at that point now. There is no salvation in time. You cannot be free in the future. Presence is the key to freedom. You can only be free now. This is, it's, he's just saying, let go. Stop fighting. Stop trying to get somewhere. It doesn't mean we have an aim in our practice, but the aim is fulfilled by how we settle in here. How we, are, how we can learn to apperceive, to, to notice our mind, to notice our body, to notice what's immediate. That's all here. And for that, you don't have to... How far do you have to travel to do that? It's nearer than your breath. Annie Lamott's son. This is another flavor of letting go. Her son, Sam, was uh, 19 or right around 19 years old when his girlfriend got pregnant, which he writes was a lesson in trust and surrender. 
I saw that either I could be a pain in the ass, no show, or I could understand that history was being made. You can see he realized how do I what's the what's the wise way to deal with this? History is being made. Open to it. Let it go. Die. Die to your circumstances. Die to your die to the moment. As Rumi says, inside this new love, die. Your way begins on the other side. Become the sky. Take an axe to the prison wall. Escape. Walk out like someone suddenly born into color. Do it now. You're covered with thick cloud. Slide out the side. Die. And be quiet. Quietness is the surest sign that you've died. Your old life was a frantic running from silence. The speechless full moon comes out now. So the Buddha didn't stop with the cause of suffering, the prescription to let go, to surrender to abandon the the craving, the clinging or attachment. He reminded us that in the third truth that there is a cessation, there is the possibility of freedom. We can die to our life and be born into light, be born into freedom. And he says, do it now. he put it, there is a cessation to suffering. And it's fulfilled in these simple moments of mindful attention where you're not fighting with reality, being with things just the way they are. I could, our time is running out, but I could tell you many vignettes from my own life because this is something that is both philosophical and you can ponder these four noble truths, at least these first three. There's suffering or difficulty. There's the cause of it and there's the end of it. And then finally, there's a path to the end of it, which we will talk about as, and you're actually practicing while you're here. This, on one hand, is a, a beautiful description of reality and what can make us, uh, help us be free. But it's something that we actually test out in the immediacy of our lives. It's something that we test out in every vignette where you're suffering, where it's really hard. And you can notice, oh, this is dukkha. This is, what's, this is unsatisfactoriness. This is misery, whatever it is. This is what's hard to bear right now. This is friction. And we can say, okay, I'm opening to this. And then we can recognize any way that you might be resisting it, how, any way that you might wanting it to, want it to be different. I just got into a huge altercation at the airport and I, I'm remembering this because I talked about it here in April. I got into this big thing with the security guard at the airport in uh, Regina, Saskatchewan. They wouldn't let me through and I was late for my flight. And I got so furious. And, but then I, I felt it. I really felt this is what ill will feels like. And this is... And the cause of it is I want this guy to be different. I want him to get to my flight. And there was so many, there was so much craving in my mind. 
and I could say, yes, I feel this craving and I'm, I'm letting it be. I'm, I'm, I'm not feeding it right now. I'm letting go. I'm abandoning the cause by just let, being with it. And as I sat with it, it was not pretty and not pleasant. And after a few little um, swear words <laughs> came out of my mouth, even meditation teachers swear, <laughs> as I felt it and really looked at it as, a, as nature expressing itself, it, it faded and I realized there's an end to this. And by virtue of, of practicing mindfulness with it and being with it, fortunately it's a little bit more developed habit now, uh, I was walking the path. It's not so exotic. It's really right in the middle of your experience. Test it out. Is this true? Is it true that life has difficulties? Okay, can I open to it? Is it true that the cause of my difficulties is I want things to be different? And is it true that when I let this be, just explore this, let it go, there is a a sense of freedom that comes. This is how the Buddha put it. And it's something we can test moment to moment. It says, for one who clings, motion exists. For one who clings, who, but for one who clings, motion exists. But for one who clings not, there's no motion. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there's no craving. Where no craving is, there's neither coming nor going. Where neither coming nor going is, there is neither arising or passing away. Where neither arising or, nor passing away is, there is neither this world, nor a world beyond, nor a state in between. This is the joy of nirvana. This is possible in, a, in this very life. So I will end with a, a simple sutra from the Buddha called A Handful of Leaves. The Blessed One was once living in Kasambi in a wood of Simsapa trees. He picked up a few leaves in his hand and he asked the bhikkhus, how would you conceive this bhikkhus? Which is more, the few leaves that I have picked up in my hand or those in the trees of the forest? The leaves that the Blessed One has picked up in his hand are few, Lord. Those in the wood are far more. So too, bhikkhus. The things that I have known by direct knowledge are more. The things that I have told you are only a few. Why haven't I told them? Because they don't bring any benefit. No advancement in the awakened life because they don't lead to the cessation of suffering, to stilling, to direct knowledge, to awakening, to nirvana. That's why I haven't told you. And what have I told you? I've told you there is dukkha, which is the word for dissatisfaction, that which is difficult to bear, suffering. There is dukkha, there is the origin of dukkha, there is the cessation of dukkha. And there is a a path, a way leading to the cessation of dukkha. That is what I have told you. Why have I told it? Because it brings benefit. It brings advancement in the practice because it leads to dispassion and fading, to ceasing, to stilling, to direct knowledge, to awakening, to nirvana. So, bhikkhus, let your task be this. There is suffering, 
There's the origin of suffering. There's cessation of suffering. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. Let's sit quietly. As Ajahn Chah put it, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll have complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will come to an end. Thank you for listening. Please enjoy the first noble truth wherever it presents itself. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.